I'm in love with my Savior, and He's in love with me. He is with me from day to day. What a friend is He. Watches over me while I sleep, hears me when I pray. I'm as happy as I can be, now I can say. Somebody loves me and answers my prayers. I love somebody, I know he cares. Somebody tells me not to repine. That somebody is Jesus and I know he's mine. when our work is done he will call us home to a mansion he has prepared never more to roam we'll sit down with a riverside cares all passed away and with never a pain to bear what a happy day somebody loves me and he answers my prayers i love somebody Somebody tells me not to repine That somebody is Jesus and I know he's mine Somebody loves me and he answers my prayers I love somebody, I know he cares Somebody tells me not to repine that somebody is Jesus and I know he's mine. That somebody is Jesus and I know he's mine. He is mine. Well, amen. I like that one. Somebody loves me. I know who that is. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We sang about it in our little course here just a moment ago. Take your Bible, if you would. Turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1 today. Acts, chapter 1. Somebody uh, handed me a, a bit of information about one of the Sunday school classes. Yeah, there was a Sunday school teacher who was speaking to their class, and they asked the question. They said, if I sold my house and my car and had a big garage sale and gave all my money to the church, would that get me into heaven? The children said, no. If I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard, and kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me into heaven? Once again, the children kind of looked at the teacher and said, no. Once again, well then, children, if I was kind to animals and gave candy all, to all the children and loved my wife, would that get me into heaven? No! Man, that teacher started thinking, boy, I must be doing a pretty good job around here. Man, these children, I mean, they seem much more theologically sophisticated than I ever gave them credit for. Then how in the world do I get to heaven? And a five-year-old boy shouted, you got to be dead. (laughs) 
Okay, well, okay, that child at least, it had a right, there's no doubt about that. But uh, anyway, so our teachers think they're doing a pretty good job. I think they're doing all right, but maybe not as good as they think sometimes, right? Oh, well, isn't that true for all of us? No, that's good. That really wasn't one of our teachers. I, somebody handed that to me. I thought I'd share it with you. All right, for three years now, the disciples had abandoned just everything in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had witnessed a number of miracles, many miracles. They'd heard many messages. They'd acquired many memories. But the cross had ended life as they had known it. Then amidst the darkness, the light sprang forth. Three days and three nights later, Christ arose. It would, he would spend 40 days instructing and preparing the saints for his parting. And now it was time for him to return to heaven. He gathers his disciples together one last time. And we see it recorded in Acts chapter 1. Here in verse 4, we begin reading. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Here in verse 4, he tells the disciples that they're to remain in Jerusalem while waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend. This is going to be his last conversation before he makes his way back to heaven. And he says, I want you to wait here for the Holy Spirit to descend. And then in verse 5, he assures them that it wouldn't be long. So, fellas, listen, don't get too anxious. Just, I mean, don't be too, uh, uh, be, be careful you don't get uh, too anxious and move ahead. You just simply wait. It won't be long till the Holy Ghost comes. Then in verse 6, you see the disciples asking about the coming kingdom in which Christ would rule and Israel would reign. Again, that was something that was prophesied from the Old Testament, so it wasn't something that they would have had no knowledge about. No, indeed, they knew more than we might imagine. They expected and anticipated that Christ would one day rule and reign on the throne of David and that Israel would be elevated and magnified among the nations. And that was truly prophesied, and it will indeed come to pass one day. But Jesus instead, in verse 7, reminds them that they don't need to be concerned about that for now. That's not what you need to focus your attention on. You don't need to be worrying about whether or not the kingdom will come to pass soon, whether or not Israel will be elevated, whether or not you'll join me in that reigning kingdom. No, instead, he goes on to say, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And at that point, 
The Bible says, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. The Lord had ascended now back to heaven, leaving the disciples with a promise and with a command. The promise, you're going to receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The command, ye shall be witnesses unto me. From our Lord's last command, we arrive at our new theme, soul purpose. He commands them to be witnesses. What an undertaking, what a responsibility, and yet what a privilege. Jesus Christ had come to seek and to save that which was lost, and now he entrusts the baton to the disciples. He passes it down to them. He, he gives them the mantle, if you will, and to those that would ultimately follow. Jesus left them with a sole purpose. His heartbeat was for the souls of mankind. And what he did, he did to save the lost. He now passes that responsibility and sole purpose to those who would follow him. Our theme is a, is a play on words. His last command should be our first priority. Christ was all about souls, and he passed that soul purpose onto us. Some may say, well, I thought our purpose was to glorify God. That's the most important purpose. And I would agree, but how better to glorify him than by obeying his last command to evangelize the world? How better to honor his name than to spread it abroad? How better to glorify the creator of the universe than to tell the entire creation about him? So like the disciples who found themselves in a very dark and dismal age with pagan Rome ruling, with the Jewish leaders despising and hating both Christians and Christ and persecution closing in on them rapidly, so we find ourselves facing mounting odds amidst the secularization of both society and the church. And the darkness of unbelief, as it grips our nation, sin infects the masses and death takes hold on the lost. The believer in which the Spirit of God dwells must be convinced. Convinced more than ever that the only hope of our generation is that God's people return to their sole purpose. See, when it's all said and done, the hope of our nation is Christ. Christ who rescues the sinner. Christ who liberates the soul. Christ who transforms the hearts and minds of his children. And ye shall be witnesses, he says. You should be witnesses of me. Boy, times are changing. Society is changing. Our culture is changing. What is acceptable is changing. But I assure you that God hasn't changed one bit. Truth is still found in the Word of God. Right is still recorded in Scripture. And the believer's purpose is still a sole purpose as given to us by Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Now, although our theme is derived from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, let's not be remiss to note that that's not where it all began. As a matter of fact, if we're going to go back and find the root of all of this, we have to go back to the beginning. It all started with God. 
We're going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to take just a few minutes and consider where it all began, at least on earth. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd bless our time together. We pray that, Lord, you'd use this time to inspire us and encourage us to fulfill our sole purpose. Help us, Father, to be found faithful to you as a people and as individuals. Lord, may the church be obedient, and we as being part and pieces of it equally obedient. We'll thank you now and praise you. And Lord, if there be those that are without Christ here today, may they come to Jesus Christ before it's eternally too late. Before they're expected to pay for their own sin, may they allow you to pay for it in their stead. We'll thank you and we'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Take your Bible, turn over there, would you please? Again, a very familiar passage, but remember this. Although our theme is derived from Acts 1-8, that's not where it all began. And if we're not careful, we lose sight of that. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning, God, and it goes on to say, created the heaven and the earth. We know that God would go on to have creative acts or uh, that he would bring about things that ultimately you and I enjoy today. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, by the time he reaches day 6, he's creating or he's making or forming mankind. And God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, verse 26. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. From our passage this morning, right there in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it is abundantly clear that man or mankind was formed uniquely different from all the other creatures created by God. When it comes to man alone, he was made in the image of God. That's not said of any other creature. In Genesis 1, 27 again, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him, him, male and female created he them. Not only was he made in the image of God, but he possessed a living soul. That means an eternal soul. In Genesis 2, 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Animals have souls, but not living souls. Animals have personality and all the things that go with that, but they don't have something that will continue to exist forever in and through eternity. Mankind does. He was made in the image of God. He possessed a living soul. He was endowed with the ability to reason. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, we read that an Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. For, but for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. Again, notice here, it's clear that he was created with the ability to reason and to make choices, not solely based upon the nature or his nature, but based upon intellect. The fact that he named all the animals sets him apart from those he named. There's no, there's no, I mean, there's no similarity here between mankind and animals in that sense. We are uniquely different. It doesn't matter what a culture says. It doesn't matter where society is going today. God defines the difference, and God says man has a living soul, and man has an intelligence and an ability to reason that animals do not have. And man is, is, is in my image. Very unique. 
It's not to say we're not to care for God's creation. It's not to say we're not supposed to be careful that we don't abuse or hurt or harm that which he's given us. That's not the issue. The issue is, however, that we cannot replace mankind with any lower species, if you will. And somebody may say, that's lower, that's not good, that's not politically correct. You can't say something as, hey, I'm telling you right now, he named the animals, they didn't name him. Following God's work of creation, however, we notice something interesting. God rested from his work. Now listen, that's the only justifiable reason for resting, by the way. That the work is already done. If there's work to do, let's keep working. But in this case, that work of creation was completed. And because it was finished, and not only finished, but the Bible says that he looked over all that he created and he saw that it was very good. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So seeing that everything was very good, God obviously begins to enjoy that which he created. He would take strolls in the garden in the cool of the day, and one can only imagine the stir that his visits brought. The animals would surely gather around him, seeking his love and his approval. And here's the master, here's, here's God, and they'd run to him, I'm sure. He probably had to shoo him away from time to time. Okay, okay, fellas, all right, guys, it's enough, enough. Adam and Eve would have looked forward to his visits as well. I, I, in my mind's eye, I can hear either Adam or Eve saying, hey, I think I heard him. I, 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 think, I think he's here. They'd drop everything. They'd go searching for the master, finding him. They'd fall into his arms. They'd begin to share the events of the day. Maybe a question about, uh, would be posed about, well, how in the world did we get here? Can you tell us that story again? And can you remind us again of why you love us so much? They couldn't wait to spend time with him. Then one day, things seemed different. Oh, the Lord was the same. He showed up like normal, and his heart was like normal, but unfortunately, something was different. Something was unusually different. Adam and Eve were not to be found. Now, a day hadn't gone by that they didn't rush to his side, but today not hair nor hide of them could be found. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 through 7. The Bible says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Hey, God is many things, but one thing God is not. He is not unclear. He clearly expressed and shared his expectations with this first couple. There was no doubt in God's mind or in theirs what was the expectation and what he demanded. 
For in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Yet despite his clear instruction, both Adam and Eve disobeyed God. We've never done anything like that, have we? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, notice as we look at that passage, the Bible says here in Genesis 3, verse 8, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Oh, I'm sure as he had done over and over and over again. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee thou should, shouldest not eat? The answer to that question was pretty simple, wasn't it? It was a resounding yes. I mean, where before they couldn't wait for God to show up and spend time with him. Now, after violating the word of God, after disobeying the Lord, they're seen hiding from him. That's pretty obvious. I mean, why would they hide? Guilt? Shame? That would certainly prompt hiding, I believe, but I believe there's even another reason that can prove to be even more detrimental in the long run. You say, what in the world would that be? Well, I believe that their sin had affected their view of God. You say, what do you mean? Well, where once they cherished their time with God, now they hid themselves in fear. Hmm. See, when we sin, it's, we have a tendency to, it, it, it affects our view of God so often. I mean, we struggle to see him as a loving father, but instead see him as a harsh master now. It must be noted that God hasn't changed even the slightest, by the way, but Adam and Eve had. Now instead of loving on the father, now instead of rushing to him, now instead of being quick to say, oh, here we are, they're afraid, it says. Why would we be afraid of God? Because of sin. It affects our view of God. If you see an infidel, you find somebody that truly despises God. They see God differently than the believer that loves him and is loved by him. Now, God's love for that infidel is equally as much as it is for you and I, who name the name of Christ and who walk in the Spirit, so to speak, that, that are, find ourselves within the walls of the church. But may I say, friend, that somebody that is anti-God, somebody that doesn't see God, uh, uh, that doesn't obey His Word, often sees God as the enemy, not a loving Father. And may I say as a believer today, you better be careful because the moment that you disregard God's word, the moment that you travel your own pathway, the moment you disregard truth, I'm telling you it will, it will impact your view of God himself. Be careful. Oh, it's subtle, mind you. But it is there. Now with Adam and Eve sinning, it obligated God to follow through with the consequences that he had already shared would take place. The relationship that they once enjoyed with God was affected, wasn't it? 
It was impacted. The sin separating man from God, it, it, it did what it always does. It affects the relationship in a very negative way. Sin, again, always separates. Instead of enjoying the garden and the literal presence of God, both Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and destined for a harsh existence, infected by sin. Genesis 3, through 24, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Live forever what? In a state of sin? That's not what God wants for any of us. The way of the transgressor is hard. God doesn't want us to have a hard life, especially an eternally hard life. Therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the, the ground from whence he was taken So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. This was an act of mercy. This was an act of mercy. You say to be banished from the garden? Yes. Otherwise, they'd have lived in their sin forever, eating of the tree of life. They'd have never known the fellowship that comes through a relationship of righteousness with Christ. But that's not where the story ends, in separation, in banishment, in the consequences of sin. That's not where the story ends. As I said, we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we say, well, that's where our theme comes, a sole purpose. No, it begins very much earlier on. It begins in the beginning, God. Both man and woman being confronted, God then turns to Satan and informs him that his days are numbered. Look at Genesis 3, verse 15. He says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Without going into extreme detail, let me just simply summarize by saying, this verse promises the Messiah, who would ultimately wound Satan and doom him forever. He's saying, listen, I'm telling you now, You're done, Satan. One is coming that's going to crush your skull. And someone says, boy, that's harsh. Absolutely. Because sin is very, very, sin is horrible. We we don't have the proper view of sin so often. But may I say that Satan is nothing but a liar and he's the father thereof. And the truth is he wants to drag you, your family, your friends, your loved ones, right to hell. And one day we'll be rid of him, praise God. Satan had thought that he had won the victory by causing the fall of mankind. But the victory would be short-lived. Instead of God giving up on mankind and ending it all, his plan of redemption was then put into motion. In Genesis 3.21, the Bible says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. I don't know about you, but they're trying to cover themselves with old some... We say fig leaves and all that good stuff. That didn't make for a very good covering. That wasn't going to hide their shame. It wasn't going to deal with their guilt. But in this particular case, God says, wait a second. I got an alternative, but it's going to require a sacrifice. It's going to demand some blood. 
And God took those animals, and you've got to believe they had to be animals. I don't know where he got the skins. You say, well, God could have created it. But man, I'll tell you, it seems that he's taking everything from. He even created man out of the dust of the earth that he had already had put in place. So now he's going to take those coats of skins and he's going to have to get them off of an animal of sorts. That required a sacrifice and that demanded some blood. And now Adam and Eve are clothed. Someone says, well, what's wrong with, with, with running around naked? What's wrong with, with uh, uh, one of those uh, uh, beaches where nobody wears clothes? What's wrong with this and what's wrong with that? Let me tell you what's wrong with it. It's representative of the shame and the guilt that mankind carries. Mankind naked only reveals his shame and his guilt. It places him back in the garden in sin, not being redeemed by God. You got a body like this, you like to go naked. Showing your chest off. Letting everybody see the muscles popping and bulging. But that's not God's plan. That's man's plan. That should be an embarrassment. That should make us feel guilty. That should make us feel shameful. That's what the Bible says. Adam and Eve were naked and they were ashamed to stand before God. Not our generation. Think about what goes on. and I, I don't know. Listen, we got a Super Bowl coming up. I wouldn't watch that if you paid me, the, 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 the halftime program. I wouldn't watch it if you paid me. Amen. Wouldn't even think about it. Half the time there's half-naked women running around. There's people rapping and doing all kind of crazy stuff. My friend, there's something wrong when we can go back to before, we can go back to the fall and say, let's act like Adam and Eve now. Something wrong with that. Amen. Be careful. Boy, they, 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 they said, man, it's, this is a problem. And God said, listen, let me, let, me, let me just provide a sacrifice. Let me shed some blood. Let me cover your sin and your shame. Because that's what it represented. Because that's what a sacrifice does. It washes, it, it covers our sin. We know how it ends, don't we? We know that that blood would have to be shed one day, not only for the sake of Adam and Eve, not only for the sake of their, their, their progeny, but for the sake of us, you and I today. It wasn't enough that a lamb or a bull was sacrificed. That was a temporary covering. But what we do know is that God had his plan of redemption in place. He had started and begun his work. He was no longer resting, but he was at work. He was busy redeeming fallen man. And throughout the entire Old Testament, we see picture after picture after picture of God doing his redemptive work and putting things in place that point to none other than Jesus Christ who would ultimately come and pay the full price for sin. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Boy, I tell you what, back there in that garden, when they sinned against God, and that shame and guilt was upon them, and they hid themselves from God because they were naked, God said, I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to do something to restore you back to me, to allow you to have fellowship with me. And he instituted a sacrifice and the shedding of blood. And that's why we find 
early on in the book of Genesis, we see two boys that are born of these two people, and we find one murdering the other. Why? Because his sacrifice was not acceptable before God, because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. Cain kills Abel simply because his sacrifice wasn't accepted of God. I worked just as hard as Abel did. I put just as much time as Abel did. I gave my best to God. And God says, your best isn't enough unless it's blood and what I asked for. Because there's only one way for your sin to be addressed and dealt with. It's through the blood. God had started his redemptive work. Man, it required a sacrifice and blood. And throughout that Old Testament, we're going to see that there were bulls and lambs and other animals that were sacrificed and blood was shed to cover the sins of mankind to somehow seek to restore humanity back to their place with God. But it wouldn't be till Calvary that the perfect sacrifice was given and the precious, perfect blood of Christ was applied to the sins of all humanity and covered it forever, washing it away even. And he said unto them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. See, the work of redemption is still taking place today. We're still redeeming the fallen through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that the price has been paid. I understand that. But my friend, not everybody has received and accepted it. And you don't get to heaven because Jesus Christ died on the cross. You get to heaven because you accept his sacrifice as payment for your sin. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we understand why Jesus Christ, who the Bible says came to seek and to save that which was lost, ultimately transferred, passed down the baton, handed them the responsibility and the privilege of sharing the gospel to the world so that mankind could be restored unto the Lord Jesus Christ, restored back to God again. When God's perfect work was marred by sin, he provided a sacrifice and blood. He resumed his work. No time to rest now. Let's get to it, he says. And throughout that book, this Bible, we see God seeking to draw mankind back to himself. And in every case, it requires a sacrifice and blood. We will seek, as mankind, we will seek many alternatives. And we see it recorded in Scripture. Many ways to somehow obtain His favor or to 
find our way into his presence, but nothing ever works but his plan. Sacrifice and blood. I wonder today, how do you view God? How do you view God this morning? If you don't recognize him for who he is, as he's biblically described and shared, if you don't know God, the God of the Bible, but you've somehow created your own definition of who God is, your own person of who God is, you you could be all messed up on this thing. I want you to understand that God is a loving father. But if you have yet to come to him and accept his sacrifice and precious perfect blood that was shed on Calvary 2,000 years ago, if you've not received Jesus Christ into your life and said, Lord, I know I deserve hell and I must pay the penalty for my sin, but I don't want to, I'm allowing Christ to do so, then he will be obligated by his character to pass the consequences on to you. Instead of allowing Christ to pay the penalty for sin by dying on Calvary, you'll have to die spiritually and be eternally separated from God forever in a place called the lake of fire. You say, I don't like a God like that. That's because you don't know who he is. You'd somehow, if you're not careful, you'll think he's just a God that's so mean and nasty and so angry. Maybe you were abused as a child. And you think God's like that abuser. That if you come to him and you trust him, he'll somehow take advantage of you. He won't do that to you. No, he loves you as a loving father. A father that would never take advantage of his children, but instead wrap his arms around them, love on them, and then ultimately provide them every opportunity to succeed. Boy, we get some bad images of God today. Because people are people and they do horrible things. Sometimes we can associate their pitfalls and their sins and their failures and somehow cast them upon the God that created them and blame him for them. But that's not God. That's Satan and that's the sin that we're facing and dealing with. In our Sunday school lesson, you may or may not have addressed it, but in there we see in Romans chapter 8 that even the whole creation groaneth together That we're in pain today. Why? Because of sin. Not because of Jesus the Savior, but because of sin. Jesus the Savior is the answer to sin and to its consequences. It wasn't just 2,000 years ago that the plan was put in motion. This has been going on since the beginning. And today, you and I as a church and as individuals in the body of Christ have the privilege and the opportunity to take up our cross and to bear the responsibility of reaching a world with the gospel to fulfill our soul. Today, if you're lost, I want you to know he loves you and he'll save you. But if you're a child of God today, it's time that we realize why he left us here. He didn't just leave us here so that we could build our 401ks and retire and enjoy life. 
He didn't put us here so that we could just enjoy frivolous passions and enjoy just life in general. No, he put us here with a purpose, a sole purpose, to see the world transformed and changed for him. Every culture and every country is in need of one person more than any other, Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, What's your background? It doesn't matter. Jesus is the solution. He is the answer. And as believers today, we must carry him to a world. You'll see that he says, you must be, he says, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, he says. Unto him. Sharing him with others. Elevating him in the eyes of others. Maybe today you have been hurt. I want you to know that he loves you today. If you've never accepted him, please do so today. He put this plan in motion and he allowed his son to be sacrificed and his son's blood to be shed so that you could be restored to him as it was in the garden prior to the fall so that you could fellowship with him even today and one day forever live with him in a place called heaven. Settle it today, would you? Don't leave here questioning or wondering whether or not heaven will be your home, whether or not Christ is real. Well, I believe in God. That's not enough. You've got to remember that God sent his son to die for you, to pay your penalty for sin. It's not just saying, I believe in God. You must accept the payment that was paid on behalf of you for your sin. There has to be a transaction that takes place. There has to be okay, here's my sin. And someone has to say, okay, I'm going to pay for that for you so that you don't have to pay for it yourself. And they pull out, there it is, a bunch of dollar bills. And they say, here you go. There it is. Payment. Payment for your sin. Payment for your sin. It's not this, you just believe that I exist. You must have your sin paid for. And I provided payment by allowing my son Jesus Christ to die on a cross and to shed his perfect precious blood. To not just cover, but to wash your sin away. Will you let me pay for your sin today, God says? Or will you choose to pay for it yourself by being eternally separated from me, God, who created you. God, who loves you more than anyone could ever imagine. God, who longs to spend an eternity with you. Will you let him pay for your sin today? If you haven't, please let him. And if you have, will you fulfill your sole purpose? Will you begin to share him, the very one that saved you, with those around you? Will you pass out a track that gives the truth of his coming, his sacrifice, and his salvation? Will you take up your cross and share his with the world? Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us and all you do. And Lord, there's no doubt, Father, that we are just simply sinners 
outside of your precious salvation and work in our lives. We can't help but thank you for paying the penalty and price for our sin, providing us a sacrifice, providing the precious, perfect blood so that we could be restored. Thank you that you began that work so many years ago. From the very moment mankind fell, you got back to work. Lord, help us, Father, to also get back to work. The work that you left us here to do, help us to fulfill our sole purpose in reaching the world with the gospel, to do the same thing you came to do. May we be the Christians we ought to be so that we can reach the world. May we learn the word of God the way we should so we can reach the world. May we live the Christian life the way we're supposed to so we can reach the world. May we, Father, truly understand who you are and all about you so that we can translate that into ability to share you with others. May we be the husbands and wives we ought to be so that our testimony is clear and plain to the world that they can recognize and see that we are living according to the word for the express purpose of reaching the world. May we win on our knees and pray. May we find ourselves in the word studying. May we, Father, do all things to grow in Christ Jesus and be more conformed to his image that others may see you and be drawn to you. Father, help us, Lord, we pray. And if there be any that are lost without you today, may they be saved. In this room today, with every head bowed and every eye closed, do you know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven? Can you say honestly and Sincerely, I know heaven's my home. I don't question. I don't have to doubt it. I know, and I can point to a verse in Scripture that says for sure I know I'm going to heaven because I have followed through with the Word of God. But maybe you don't know today. Preacher, honestly, I can't say for sure I'm on my way to heaven, and I can't say I know for sure. Please pray for me. Would you just pray for me? Because I don't have that settled in my heart, my life. I want to believe it maybe that I am, but honestly, I can't say that I can remember a time when I personally trusted and received Christ, when I recognized and understood my need of salvation. Please pray for me, preacher. I don't know for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven. I don't have that settled today. I can't say for sure that I know I'm on my way to heaven. Anybody like that? I haven't settled that in my life. Anybody like that? I don't know that for sure. May I pray for you with just a simple uplifted hand? Put it up, put it down, and I'll pray for you today. Father, I think I might have seen a hand or two go up, but Lord, there may be more hands that should have gone up even. I pray, dear God, that you would just help people to recognize and see the need, Father, those that raise their hand that you are the only way, the truth, and the life, that you love them that much, that you paid the penalty for their sin, that you just want to receive them unto yourself. You want to settle this sin situation so that they don't have to ever be concerned about sin. They just need to be worried about pleasing you and living their life on behalf of you and enjoying your presence and enjoying what you do for them and how you live, how you lived, died, and rose again for them. Father, I pray, Lord, you just meet the need just a moment when the music begins to play, I'm going to ask that you tap the courage to come forward. I'm going to ask that you step out of your pew, walk forward, and see this gentleman at the front and tell him, hey, I need to settle my salvation. If you're a lady, we'll have a lady help you. If you're a guy, we'll have a guy help you. But don't leave here without knowing. He put this plan in motion all those years ago just for this day because he saw you and he loved you that much. Child of God, what about you? Will you commit to passing out a track this week? Will you commit to 
talking to somebody about the Lord, maybe writing a note or a letter or knocking on a door or confronting a family member and talking to them about Jesus and telling them why you love him so much, telling them what he's done for you. Maybe we need to make some commitments today. Father, we thank you again for this time. Bless this time of invitation. Lord, may you move those that are in need of Christ. May you move those that are in need of making commitments on your behalf. Help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed.